Hi, I'm Jahada Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror. This week, we're bringing you a discussion that we recorded as part of NetThing 2022. NetThing is Australia's internet governance forum, and its theme this year was More Resilient Together. It focuses on how we as a community, that is civil society, industry and government, can work together to maintain an internet that is open, resilient and interoperable. On the panel, I was joined by Kate Pounder, the CEO of the Tech Council of Australia, and Richard Windia, the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development, Communications and the Arts. We talked about how to get tech regulation right in Australia. And given the recent string of high-profile data breaches here, I think tech regulation is front of mind for many Australians in a way that it just hasn't been before. And in our conversation, we talk about a report that the Tech Policy Design Centre released a few months back, tending the tech ecosystem. And in this report, we flipped the question. Instead of asking what should be the tech regulations, we asked who should be the tech regulators. This report was informed by interviews with heads of Australian regulators, senior public servants, industry executives, and also a comparative study of how regulators are organising themselves in 14 jurisdictions globally. In the discussion we're bringing you today, we talk about some of the findings from the report and we draw out Richard and Kate's views on many of these key issues. Kate and Richard, when we focus on how to design effective tech regulation, it's easy to lose sight of the objective of the regulation. So I really wanted to start our discussion today by asking each of you, what would Australia look like if we got tech regulation right? How would citizens, industry and government be impacted if we actually manage to create a tech ecosystem that is effectively regulated? Kate, let's start with you. It's a fabulous question, Johanna, because I think we can sometimes lose sight of the end goal, particularly when we're dealing with a stressful time such as we are now with the recent cyber hacks. And so I think this, I think that if we get this right, we'll be a country that feels it's in control of its future, feels it's in control of the jobs it's creating and who gets into them, feels we're in control of being able to create these new industries and companies that can go confidently in the world and build products and services that we're proud of, as well as, um, you know, making us a stronger and more resilient and successful company. And I think we'll be a citizenry that feels um, sort of enabled um, and capable of building and using those products and services. And, you know, and that's often where regulation comes in. And, you know, I like to think that, um, you know, we need to sort of turn um, both through regulation, but through all the other levers available to us, some of our, what feels like vulnerabilities now into strengths, like we're a nation of tech adopters. You know, that's actually one reason we're being targeted with through these cyber hacks, um, but that should be our strength as well, right? Because technology can help keep us safe, both through the quality of the products that we're building and the, the services and websites that we're building, but also through the way we use technology, whether that's digital identity and credentials or simpler technologies like encryption into FA, to be helping us build a really resilient um, economy that's on the front foot. And that doesn't have to stop engaging with data and digital services because we feel um, that it's become a danger. So I think if we get the balance right, that's the kind of future we can have. 
Yeah, and I love that concept, Kate, of um, if we get tech regulation right, we're actually controlling Australia's future. Um, so, Richard, uh, over to you to, to help us paint that vision. Well, I, I'll start by saying I, I, like, I really like the way Kate has presented it or described it because I think that resonates with me. And, in fact, the thing that I think was most telling in the way Kate described it is the first half of our answer didn't actually talk about tech at all. It talked about consumers and confidence and goods and services um, rather than tech. And I suppose the, the point I'd make, I mean, at one grandiose level, I would say if we get it right, then hopefully Australia's national interests are protected, consumers feel safe and, and markets work. Um, and I sort of have those three dimensions because it does seem to me that we regulate for a lot of different purposes and that's worth keeping in mind as well, um, whether it's economic regulation or consumer protection regulation or even sort of national security or national interest regulation. They're all often different, separate, sometimes overlapping, but not always overlapping buckets. And I think one of the other things that I, I feel if we get it right is that our citizens, Australians, can kind of concentrate and focus on the digital services they are receiving rather than worrying about the tech underlying them that is causing them to be delivered. Um, and that's just the less elegant way, I think, of pointing to Kate's confidence, um, kind of confidence piece. Um, so I think, I mean, and you will hear me probably mention this, say this a few times, Johanna, today, and I think you and I, and certainly Kate and I, have talked about this in the past. Um, it, for me, the, a huge amount of this is actually working out what we mean by or what tech reg actually is versus what, you know, actually contemporary 21st century regulation of a whole lot of sectors looks like, which just happen to be sectors that are now quite digitally rich or tech heavy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I think that that idea of um, regulating for many different purposes and 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 the idea of people being able to focus on the services that are delivered rather than the tech that underpins them um, is is also a, a really great way to articulate the objective. And I always say that tech policy is actually just policy or tech regulation is actually just regulation. So uh, definitely uh, of one mind there. And um, to to those who are listening, if you do have uh, questions as we're going through, please feel free to put them uh, into the question uh, function and I'll try and inject them into the panel uh, in an interactive way so you don't have to wait to the end. Um, so please feel free to use that, uh, the, the uh, Q&A function that is there. Um, so when we now turn to looking at the findings of the report attending uh, the tech ecosystem, um, one of the things that we uh, were looking at was what are the skills, knowledge and expertise that you would need to have to actually be an effective tech regulator? Um, I, I'll talk about what the findings of the report are, but before I reveal the findings, I mean, people, uh, I, I know uh, Kate and Richard, you're at its launch, so you, you know the answers, you've got the exam question in advance, but I would love to just hear from, from both of you what you think the characteristics uh, of an effective regulator to be able to uh, achieve that vision that both of you have, have just articulated there. Um, Richard, I'll throw to you first. Um, thanks. Uh... So again, I'll sort of pose a question back and then and then come to the question. But I one of the things that went through my mind thinking about this is kind of what are the 
what are the skills and attributes you want for a regulator versus what are the skills, you know, if you're talking about, if we talk about a tech regulator, what are the regulatory skills you need as well as the tech skills you need? Um, yeah. And it's a, it's, a, it's a question that I think we in government do grapple with uh, all, you know, frequently when we're looking for people to be regulators of the telecommunications sector, for example, to what extent do you bias towards people who are experienced regulators who will learn how telecommunications markets and systems work versus people that have expertise in the telecommunications world um, and they come into government and learn how to be a regulator. And I think that is a, actually a tricky, is a tricky balance to get right. Um, and I think one of the things I would say is that it's perhaps one of the strengths in having regulators who are not individual people, they are part of a board or an authority or a commission that therefore can blend a variety of bits of expertise. Because being a regulator is a, is a, is a you know, there are a whole lot of skills associated with making decisions um, in a regulatory sense that, it, you know, that are technically in their own right, let alone the, um, the skills or knowledge you might need for the sector you are being asked to regulate. Um, the next thing I suppose I'd say, I mean, one way of looking at it perhaps is I would like to see um, people that are by, you know, sort of by nature able to be focused on outcomes, um, able to be collaborative both across government and across industry and across co-regulators, understand the need to be uh, to be accountable. And that's actually sort of a regulatory, you know, that's a kind of regulator skill, but possibly, but particularly perhaps have an attitude which is, um, which is willing to countenance change and um, uh, uh, change in the future. Um, a couple of other things, though, I think you know, um, I would add is when it comes to some things in the world of tech or some things in the world of digital, one of the features that I think is quite relevant is we end up talking about businesses that are global in nature and delivery of goods and services which don't necessarily or services that don't necessarily. Um, are not easily stopped at a, at a territorial border. And so one of the things I think is worth, um, is important in the, in the digital world is an eye to where we fit, you know, an eye to Australia's place in the world or an eye to where our regulatory decisions and even our regulatory frameworks fit with respect to those in other countries that, the, that are grappling with the same problems and dealing with the same industry, um, industry players. Mm -hmm. um, the question that I don't I don't have a great answer to this. I mean, ho hopefully Kate can answer this. Is the sort of blessed question of how much do you need to be able to produce the clever algorithm in order to be able to regulate the things that the clever algorithm um, delivers? And I I think that's really really hard um, uh, to work out what the right blend is. Um, can you just regulate what things? Can you regulate by focusing on outcomes and behaviours rather than having to regulate the um, the things that go into the system. Um, safety regulators, traditionally, we would, you know, you would expect to understand how cars work and how planes work in order to regulate them safety, safely, but other things you can regulate by looking at the outcome and say, you know, your challenge is to run your business to produce the right outcomes, not the wrong outcomes. I don't have to design your algorithm for you. I, that's the piece that I think is, is tricky to know how to get right because the challenge, and and then the challenge is where do you find um, where do you find the people that tick all um, that potentially tick all those boxes? Kate will have the answer. 
<laughs> Thanks, Richard. Uh, so I will um, throw to Kate. Um, these were um, some of the topics that were much discussed uh, in the report as well, but I'll, I'll let Kate um, jump in before I um, uh, speak to the report. Thank you. And look, I would firstly um, agree with everything Richard said in terms of the qualities you need in the regulator. I think you do need people who have a range of expertise within the regulator, but not every individual has to be able to fulfill each piece of expertise. That's, that's an impossible ask, but it's being thoughtful about the team you're creating and the staff and, and the board or the commission model that you have um, in those agency structures. Um, I, I actually think in some ways, though, to also echo Richard's point, it's the mindset, you know, and, and the skills, not simply the knowledge. I think being really good at problem solving, particularly knowing how to navigate the levers of government and the workings of government and knowing, you know, the thing, the rules you have to follow and the times when you need to actually come up with new solutions. I actually think that's an incredibly important judgment call often, but it's so critical in our space because so often it's not simply a procedural and enforcement based regulation. You're actually constantly being confronted with a new problem that there's no rule book for. So that, that creativity and that problem solving is actually a, a really important quality, I think. Um, but knowing, you know, the bounds within which you can exercise that discretion and, and when to when to develop new rules and when to follow and enforce the rules that apply and know, knowing how to interpret them. Um, and I think that point on collaboration, engaging with stakeholders is really key because often you basically have to solve the problem together to an extent because no one has perfect knowledge of what's happened or the technologies or the rules. So you can't have a model where there isn't collaboration. To Richard's point, though, and I think it's a really good one, do you need to have built something to know how to take it apart and understand it and regulate it? I can only speak from personal experience and I am, you know, by no means a technical person in my training, but I did, I did actually work as a regulator in the first part of my career and then went and worked in consulting, but also for Data61 for a period. And I've got to say, I didn't actually build an algorithm, but having to sit in meetings with data scientists where I was the partner responsible for a data analytics project and I had to really understand the choices we were making, the data, the, the complexities has made me a much better policy thinker because sometimes I can look at a piece of legislation and say, yeah, I know we haven't described I know the policy outcome we're trying to achieve and I can see we're not describing it correctly or, you know, in this current debate about data, I think it's a, an irony that in the same week we're all becoming increasingly concerned about the amount of data that's being collected by the private sector, the parliament's passing a piece of legislation that will massively expand the rights of the ATO to force a lot of companies to be collecting a whole range of private data. And I think the only reason no one's put two and two together is no one really appreciates what the legislation that's passing on that second point is doing. And so I think when you've worked with that technology and on it, it doesn't mean you have to be a, a data scientist. You can, I think, understand something, particularly when it's not presented to you in a clear way more readily. And that that's an, that's an important skill, but not everyone in the, in the regular needs to have it. Yeah, and, and uh, folks won't be surprised to know that this was a really key part of the discussion um, that in all of the interviews that we conducted. Um, and it was probably one of the one of the main parts of the report where there was divergence of views. Um, there were a number of the interviewees who felt that a regulator wouldn't be able to actually regulate effectively in this space unless they were able to have that level of expertise. 
And then the divergence really came from the point of, did that expertise need to be in-house or would it be possible for the, the regulators to obtain that expertise elsewhere? Um, and what, what my team is currently doing at the moment is finalising a revised model focused on coordination which is looking at um, internationally global best practice in terms of how do you actually pull in that expertise when there is uh, an information and knowledge asymmetry sitting, and it's not just with regulators, but also with policymakers. What are some mechanisms that we can put in place to actually help to address that in a really practical sense? And that's uh, part two of the report, which is coming soon. Um, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of other things that, uh, that Kate and Richard spoke about there. Uh, outcomes focused uh, a regulatory toolkit was something that had absolutely unanimous support uh, from everybody that we interviewed. Um, and uh, the I, the need for there to be multidisciplinary skills uh, within regulators was also something. Um, this idea that you do need people who can understand tech, whether they can build the algorithms, that's the conversation we've just had, but at least have that base level of understanding. And I think the example Kate just gave there is a really good one. Um, but then there was also a lot of the people that we interviewed who emphasised that you actually need to understand regulatory craft as well uh, and how government works. This is um, some of the things uh, that, that uh, both Richard and Kate had emphasised. Um, one thing that also jumped out to us, and I'd be really interested, particularly from the NetThing community, on your thoughts and views on this, but one thing that really stood out was it didn't matter whether the interviewees that we had uh, discussed uh, the, the questions with were from government, from industry or from civil society. Everyone we spoke to in the field has a really strong sense of purpose uh, about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And I think this is something that we can actually harness more efficiently and more effectively to drive good regulatory outcomes. And I know a lot of that that passion and purpose sits within the NetThing community. So I, I would be particularly interested if any of you have views on how we might better harness uh, that uh, passion and purpose. Um, the international dimension was something that came out uh, as well, um, just to flag for people, uh, one of the other major projects of work that my team is working on is a global tech policy atlas, which we'll be launching uh, within a month, um, which is looking at bringing together different attempts to regulate globally. We have a database that is currently sitting at about 3,800 records for over 40 countries. We're really excited to unleash that onto the world to help sort of provide a central starting point for people who are looking at exactly what Richard was talking about there, about what can we learn uh, from others. Um, and then I, the, the one other thing that uh, had universal support on this question was about business models, um, that if we are going to be an effective regulator in this space, that they need to understand the business models um, by which um, the tech sector uh, operates within uh, to understand the levers and incentives um, that are available. And I, I noticed one of the questions that has been put up in the, in the Q&A is saying that often regulation is focused on um, on uh, you know regulating bad behaviour, but should we be also focusing focused on incentivizing good behaviour? I think that does uh, in part go to this question of 
um, you know, do we actually need to have a better understanding as regulators, as policymakers of what drives tech business models? But then how do we actually build that expertise, that understanding of tech business models? Because they are quite different from other business models that exist sort of more traditionally within the Australian economy. Um, so, Kate, I might throw that question to you first uh, and then across to Richard. Yeah, I think it's a very important question. Um, I think it's, you know, I mean, ultimately, when you're a regulator, you've got an outcome you're trying to achieve, and your goal is to really work out the best way to achieve that outcome. And I think because business models can be quite varied in the sector, and they because they can change over time, if you're not acquainted with them, it's harder to know whether your policies are working and you're achieving the outcome or whether the outcome might need to change because of the world has changed. So how to do it? I think um, engaging with stakeholders is really important and building up your personal affinity and knowledge with the sector. And, you know, that can be through reading and podcasts and things, you know, attending conferences and seminars, but, you know, probably more than anything else, just going out and talking to people in the sector, I think also can really help. Um, that's personally what I do a lot with my members just to stay current. Um, I think though it's also taking a step back because if I can give you an example, you know, the government at the moment has a critical industries list, effectively a critical tech list, but it's sort of defaulted sometimes to being the things you need to regulate to protect Australia. Whereas I think you can flip it around and also think about the things that can make our economy stronger. And, you know, I've thought about thinking it like a regulatory offset model or a budget offset model where if, if say at the moment we're introducing visa screening for all of these industries and roles in them which is a, a it's moving it's, it was legislated last year and we're putting it through I'm like why not I mean ministers also have direction powers about prioritizing um, the types of industries or jobs that should be prioritized in the skills migration system why wouldn't we just issue a ministerial direction also prioritizing processing roles in any of these critical tech industries because that will mitigate some of the impact of extra visa screening and I think at the moment with the cyber security you're seeing it's evidencing that when you have really deep skill shortages in software engineers and cyber security professionals across the economy it actually becomes a real vulnerability so we could sort of fix that problem by doing a sort of simultaneous ministerial direction that would both prioritize it but also add this you know important protective visa screening layer so I think just taking that mindset of this can be something that benefits us, it can be something that's a vulnerability, how are we constantly maximising for both is another way of not having to know everything um, but still kind of bringing it back to the outcome. Yeah, and I, I, I couldn't agree with you more about the critical tech list, Kate. I think um, often the focus is on protecting and, and the thing that I would like to emphasise is that actually by promoting the industry, there is an element of protecting uh, that can be built into it as well, so that it works both ways. Um, Richard, from your perspective, um, do you find it difficult to understand the tech business models? What are the strategies that that you and and your department are using to to uh, gain that level of understanding to understand the levers at your disposal? So, I mean, in, in some respects, it's exactly the same sorts of things that Kate was talking about. Um, you do need to, I mean, what I'd say perhaps is to expand business models slightly to also understand the, whatever the digital equivalent of a supply chain is becomes the other part of it, it seems to me, um, because I think it's a question of making sure you know enough to be able to think about how incentives might or might not work and to be able to work out what's the right 
place to focus your intervention, which might, you know, be further up a chain, for example, rather than at the last consumer facing endpoint potentially. So I think there's a, for me, there's both the sort of supply chain piece as well as the individual business model piece, both are important to understand. And to be honest, I mean, it's not, as I say, it's not rocket science. You kind of do just have to make a concerted effort to be out talking to people. Um, the key thing in a way is to do that in the quiet times. What's really hard to do is to kind of do that when you're in the process of trying to regulate or when you're in the process of trying to write the law. Um, it's easier to get, I mean, in fact, slightly going back to the last question, it's probably easier to get the, in the regulated sector itself to help policymakers than it is to get them to help regulators because you're not, you know, there comes a point where you don't want to incriminate yourself with a regulator potentially, but there is, so sometimes we've got a, perhaps an advantage in the policymaking world over a regulator because people are happy to help and talk early to try and shape um, sensible, legislative or regulatory frameworks that we're putting in place it's a two can be too late once the law's in place and the regulators forced to enforce it um, and it's complicated for regulators when when there's an issue underway so early engagement engagement in the quiet times i think is key one a couple of other points i'd i'd mention um sort of related to this one is that when you're thinking about regulation one of the tools that's worth making sure you've got in your regulatory schemes is appropriate information gathering powers for, um, uh, and even in the telco sector, for example, we've got a whole lot of record keeping powers. But so you can you can actually give the capacity for regulators to be able to get access to information to help them with their decision making. Um, uh, you don't always want to go to it, but sometimes even though formal information gathering powers are quite useful, I think on both sides, they're useful for regulators and they're potentially useful for industry sectors who would be reluctantly, reluctant to voluntarily hand over information. But if there's a formal regulatory process to require it, then that sometimes, not in all instances, might make it easier. But so there is, there are things you can do in regulatory frameworks themselves that are helpful. Um, I think, uh, I just I made the point about supply chains, which is probably a clunky bit of language, but it does. The other point I suppose I'd go to and picking up some of what Kate talked about is Kate's description of things with the critical tech stuff and the visa stuff kind of just points out that unfortunately government is often messy and choices about whether you view an issue through a migration and skills lens versus a national security um sovereign interest lens are choices that are we're always juggling i think in government and are interesting to try and navigate and i mean i think even if you look at the recent some of the stuff going on recently um uh whether we're looking at what happened with Op what happened with optus and what happened with medibank have been sort of seems to me discussed publicly in different ways or commentated on in different ways and there's almost been because optus is a telecommunications company and because telecommunications companies are critical infrastructure companies and because there's critical infrastructure legislation should have we should we be looking at that through a critical infrastructure lens um or alternatively you can look at it through a sort of data breach privacy data security you know so there there are choices that government have to make and weigh up um uh and there's, and I think that's something that is important for um, for people in government to be um, to have in mind that there are often um, 
often choices in there. Um, uh, and look, the final point, I mean, I actually, you know, the critical tech point that you've both made, I think I agree with. I mean, and I think, you know, the the discussions, the, in, the intention or some of the intention behind thinking about critical tech was as much working out what's important that in a sense presents opportunity for Australia as it is about, you know, it's sort of, the way I sort of think about it is we're trying to identify things that are critical for Australia and Australians' prosperity, but also might be things that others think are critical to prosperity and therefore may well be opportunities if we've got strength in them um, to harness, cultivate um, uh, and, and, um, and promote rather than all being things that are, uh, you know, Rather than a presumption that all of the critical tech things, for example, don't exist, don't start here in Australia, I suppose is the point. And I just think sometimes, I agree, some of the discussion around this can occasionally get confused or lose sight of the fact that there are sort of things are, the critical bit doesn't mean we've got to worry. It might mean that we actually, there's an opportunity before us that we should consider. Yeah, absolutely, Richard. Um, one very quick fire question for you. You mentioned um, that we should be doing consultations during the quiet time. Do you guys ever have any quiet time? When I was in government, there never was. <laughs> there's not quiet time, but there is time when, you know, and no, there's not a lot of quiet time, but there is time when you don't have an issue. Yes. You know, now is not the time to go and consult closely with a whole lot of industry players on what to do about um, data security in their business because everyone's going to be in the midst of trying to work out is it me next what's the law doing for me how liable I am I what am I going to have to do when something goes wrong but I, it's almost I mean there's actually a sort of call out here for industry and others as well as a reminder for government coming to talk to government or us getting out to talk to people when there's no set agenda there's no obvious reason why now is the time to talk is often the best time to say we can have a, a sort of sort of without prejudice discussion to understand what's going on. Um, and unfortunately, oftentimes we haven't done that and we get to the point where the discussion is going to be a little bit more um, constrained because we're doing it in light of an intention to, um, intention to legislate a regulatory decision before us and incidents occurred and we're kind of scrambling to come up the curve and close an information asymmetry or even just to kind of get each other on the on a common page much easier if you can do that in the quiet time but it is and it's a little bit of a reminder or a comment from people like me to make sure i'm doing it but also a call out to industry to say you know knocking on the door of government to say hey we're kind of interested in letting you know who we are and what we do or here's something we're working on not because you want anything from government or not because you're expecting government signal that wants to hear from you is actually worthwhile doing and hopefully people in my sorts of jobs you know accept those offers to come and have a chat willingly rather than saying no now's not the time yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, this idea of having, um, it came out a lot in the discussions that we had and in the report was the idea of non-transactional, non-adversarial forums for conversation between government, industry and civil society. And I saw that's a theme in some of the comments um, or questions that have been raised. It's also a question we'll touch on um, towards the end of the session. So we'll, we'll just put a flag down that we'll, we'll come back to that point. And I, I want to talk a little bit about um, coordination among regulators and policymakers, um, and then we'll move on to talk about um, uh, with the external parties. 
one of the, the two questions uh, that we really focused on in the report was first was the skills and attributes which we've touched on the second was really looking at this question of um do we need a different regulatory structure given that the tech sector is growing uh, it's important it's embedded um how you know is the way that we're regulating actually the best way to regulate and the question we put to our interviewees was do we need to create a super tech regulator do we need to upskill our existing regulators do we need to have some kind of hybrid of the both? Or is there a fourth option that we haven't thought of that is a much more creative option um, that would actually be a better option? And what was really interesting to me is that not one single interviewee argued for its for a super tech regulator. And let me be clear, I personally think a super tech regulator is a terrible idea, but I was surprised that no one that we interviewed uh, was in favour of that. And so the focus of the discussion then really turned to, okay, if we're not going to have a super tech regulator, and largely the argument against that was um, if you were doing that to prevent silos, and, and Richard, you were talking about the different choices that are made across government. Are we looking at this in a critical tech perspective? Are we looking at it from a data, from a privacy, or you know, I would add director's duties, corporate responsibility, these types of things as well. So in an attempt to create a super regulator that tries to break down those silos, then you would actually be creating new silos that would be, okay, so tech regulation is happening over here, but what about privacy for stuff that is offline? Where would that now fit? And so the idea is, um, or the, the um, suggestions from those that we interviewed was, we need to actually upskill our existing regulators uh, to be able to address and look at these issues um, because tech regulation is just going to become regulation. Uh, and then we also need to increase the coordination between regulators and importantly, between regulators and policymakers. Because one of the interesting things that we heard from the regulators that we interviewed um, was that there is often um, a situation where, where regulations are developed by the policy agencies um, and then given to the regulators to implement and the regulators say, look, this is actually really hard. This is not, this is not implementable. Um, and so how do we increase the coordination between uh, the regulators and the policymakers? So, I mean, Kate, you, you prior to um, uh, in a, a couple of lives ago, uh, you worked um, within a, a regulatory environment. So you bring some experience um, from to this as well. I'm interested in your thoughts um, on whether or not you agree that we need enhanced coordination among uh, policymakers and regulators. And how do you think is the best way to go about facilitating that coordination and cooperation? And, and then we'll, we'll throw it to Richard. Yeah, thank you for this question. It's one I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And, and as you said, I don't think there's a perfect answer. I think that's the first thing. It's not, not one super regulator, not one model, right? If different models will work better for different regulators and, and departments and, and questions. I think that if I could, you know, in some ways where I would start by solving this is working out what is the most important gap now, because there actually are a lot of regulators who are already in groups, already talking to each other and working with people. So what is the one gap that I think we haven't solved at the federal level? And I think that's around assurance, around the design of data regulation and programs, as well as more broadly AI. 
um, if I look around all the regulators and I see what are we struggling with a bit as we're responding to the cybersecurity hack and um, and those related issues uh, with if you know if we're introducing digital identity, like where is this, the one regulator that we don't have or the one regulated bottle? I think it's around that convergence of those data and AI policy and design issues um, because they're relatively new. You know, because a lot of these other regulatory functions preexisted um, in you know as we've digitised, but but they're a sort of newer area. So. The model that I think, though, that is best solved this, that I'm really, really excited by, is the New South Wales Government AI and Data Assurance Framework and the fact that they've put in place an independent assurance group. And I think like, what I would love to see practically at the federal level is something like a, a model which said, if you're introducing a piece of legislation or designing a program, which is likely to have a major data collection or data use or, or AI component, that's not just like very off the shelf and straightforward. The first thing you need to do as you're thinking about this is a privacy impact assessment. So like, there might be multiple other assessments, but I think a, a PII and even cybersecurity. And that should form part of that initial policy making. And then you don't in some ways have to go and reinvent new forums because there are already processes for doing those kind of things. It's just we don't necessarily do them by default at that early policy stage. And I think what would be good to establish, though, is at the federal level, a similar independent expert group to assure data and AI regulation and programs and policies, because then again, it will create a model, a model reasonably familiar to governments, but it's if anyone across the public service is working on these issues, you've now got a place where you can take you know, your planned policy, your planned program, and you can get expert feedback on it. You can have a, a good framework because the New South Wales framework includes privacy, security, fairness, transparency, a lot of those policy issues. And you can get that expert feedback at an early stage. And then as you're designing it, whether it's law, whether it's a program, you can similarly go back at different stage gates. And I think something like that would solve a lot of the current pain points. Um, and would just be a really good starting point at the federal level. Thanks, Kate. Um, we'll we'll come back to that proposal as well. Um, it's something that we have um, been focused on and, and doing a lot of work on. Before I respond to that specific point, I wanted to give Richard the opportunity to to just talk about the the uh, the need for greater coordination between policymakers and regulators. It's an age-old problem, um, and in a sense, it's a problem with a. There's another way it's described across government, which is the, for example, in another context, the relationship between policymakers and service delivery agencies, for example, where you have exactly the same thing. You've got well-intentioned people producing um, uh, public policy ideas, resulting in new legislative frameworks um, that then are handed over to service, you know, service delivery agencies to try and implement or explain to people and they turn out to be much more complicated than you first thought and we policymakers just haven't taken into account all the enormous variety of permutations and combinations that might be around. So, I mean, I think it is, it's an age-old problem and absolutely one that we need to keep, um, we need to kind of work on and, and as Kate said, there isn't an easy answer to it. I think we're getting, I mean, I think the, the, the sort of observation I would make is it's also worth thinking about, um, it's sort of a, it's a combination of crisscrossing need for coordination. There's coordination between regulators in of different, across slightly different domains. There's coordination between 
the regulator and their natural home policy agency. There's, and then there's coordination between a variety of policy agencies. And then the question is whether those lines can go diagonally as well between a comms regulator and an agricultural policy department, for example. But it is, I think there are lots of dimensions with, um, where that consultation or common understanding of what we're trying to do is worth pursuing. I mean, you know, the question that I think inevitably arises in this, I mean, I think your report sort of calls this out. You have to ask, it seems to me at some point you've got to ask the question, when you're looking at a fintech business, so you look at when, when do you emphasise the fin and when do you emphasise the tech? Or when you're looking at an ag tech business, when do you emphasise the ag versus when do you emphasise the tech? Um, and I think that's going to be a, a, you know, a thing we're going to be judging. And when does a non-fintech company that's in the financial world start getting treated because they're using an awful lot of data and they're collecting an awful lot of information begin to be seen as a fintech company. It's like, you know, it's a sort of interesting distinction that's emerged in a whole lot of areas of um, an online retail store as a tech company um, and a bricks and mortar store is a bricks and mortar store that might have an online um, retail service. And I think we're, I mean, even our language, I think is still, you know, evolving to kind of work out when that blurring when those things have begun to um, combine. So, I mean, that's not very helpful. It just suggests it's complicated. Um, I would also say though, it is worth making sure we don't overcomplicate the problem and assume absolutely everyone has to be constantly coordinating with everyone else. The spectrum of regulatory tasks and policies tasks is pretty broad and they don't all overlap. So, you know, consumer regulation, consumer protection regulation at one end, national interest regulation at the other, for example, don't have to collide um, all the time. But on the consumer protection front, there are lots of regulators that might have an interest. And I, the other dimension that I think is worth keeping in mind, and this goes a little bit to thinking about Kate's um, AI assurance piece, is bearing in mind when we're talking about regulation for the purposes of trying to design or prevent bad things happening. So sort of design and shape an industry as it emerges, you know, at the most extreme end, that becomes systems where we have to, we license people to operate versus regulations, which are all about, you know, and the role of regulators to help shape industries emerge versus the role of regulators to sort of investigate, punish and find people who have broken the law. And again, they're different, you know, or um, the role of regulators to be able to intervene and help protect people from a harm that might have just occurred or reduce, you know, prevent the amplification or the continuing perpetuation of a harm. And I think all of those can be relevant in a, in a sector. I mean, I see it in, in my world that is relevant if you think about online content. We've got a chunk of stuff designed to try and prevent certain types of content being made available. We've got laws that don't mean you can, there are sort of criminal offences associated with some online content being available. And then we've got regulators with powers to help take content down, not for any, not because we're suggesting it was illegal to have it up there so much as because it's about protecting the victim or a person that was feeling harm. So all of those dimensions begin to weave into it, um, which suggests obvious need to coordinate between different types of regulators who are all looking at the same space, but perhaps at a different point around an incident, so we say. Is it an agency that's got an interest in trying to prevent the incident in the first place? Is it an agency that's got an interest in what to do when an incident occurs? Or is it an agency that's got a responsibility or an expectation to see if someone was at fault and should be you know, held to account for contributing to the incident occurring? Um, I don't know that that really answers the question, but uh, 
it's it's complicated. It, I mean, it certainly gives us a lot of uh, a lot of food for thought, and I, I think um, this this concept of the regulators coordinating among themselves. Um, obviously, since we've published the report, uh, actually just before we published the report, um, uh, but after we did the interviews, um, the Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum, um, which uh, no, sorry, the DP Reg in Australia, Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum, is the UK version, yeah. but Australia established uh, the the um, a cooperation forum among the digital regulators, so digital platform regulators, but it doesn't include organizations like ASIC or APRA uh, who have a regulatory function, which includes a large digital and, and tech mandate. So that's one of the things that we're looking at uh, in part two of the report. I, I think also to, to um, your point, Richard, um, about you know, the many different types of regulators and their different intents and purposes, when we're looking at regulatory design, for me, one of the things that this always comes back to is if we are giving these powers to regulators, are we ensuring that we have inbuilt into the powers for the regulators, the checks and balances on the power that they are, are being given? And I think this is really what distinguishes Australian regulators from perhaps regulators in a more authoritarian leaning uh, environment. And it's a really important point that we just need to keep coming back to is there a right of repeal appeal is there transparency in what the regulators are doing um, and ensuring that we're building that in um you know to protect um the uh, australian democratic process that ultimately this is um this all comes back to what you know what is australia and and what is it that we stand for when we talk about you know creating that future um, can I just can I just respond jump in on that, Johanna? I think that's a really important point to a really important point to make, because um, I think I think the other part of it, in addition to the formal checks and balances and appeals, is how do we regulate? There's almost a degree of there's a sort of set of norms around regulators that have been around with us a long time of knowing and having a degree of confidence that appropriate people will be appointed to regulators who will make judgments in an understood way and that that will you know lead to outcomes that people have a degree of confidence in and confidence that they're not the pendulum's not swinging too wildly that's really hard to get that confidence early on and so you but it's also really hard to write black and white binary choice um, rules for things you haven't yet seen so building enough trust and having confidence that we've written the laws and we are also need to accept that the regulators will judge reasonableness reasonably um, is is a you know it's a hard it's it's tough because from a business perspective you'd be saying well this is all a little bit uncertain here I don't know quite how a regulars go regulator is going to respond to incident X or what their view of reasonable might look like um, and and in a sense, that sometimes that just takes a little while to evolve, but that's very difficult where the world's moving at sort of light speed and um, norms develop and regulatory models develop at a slightly slower pace. And Kate, did you have any thoughts on that? How how we simultaneously build trust between all of the stakeholders in this ecosystem, creating those forums for non-adversarial, non-transactional discussion, but at the same time avoiding regulatory capture. And what what do you think um, some some you know practical things we can do in this space might be? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think there's three things. I think that 
um, having good administrative procedures is vital because they're the things that actually should be most constant and certain. And that actually benefits everyone because as Richard said, often the most stressful thing from industry's point of view is not bad regulation, but uncertain regulation. Like I actually get that. That is an issue raised to me more commonly actually than a complaint about the actual rule. It's that say with the FERB you know, reviews at the moment, legally they're supposed to be done in 30 days but only 30 percent of the time is it ever done in 30 days what's different in the australian scheme is we have no if it's not done in that time frame unlike say the uk we don't have subsequent clarity about what happens next like in the uk you either by default get approved or else you have an extension granted for a fixed period of time if you disagree with that there's a procedure contested so for me i think just you know, you don't want people to be arguing about procedure. You want procedure to be really certain and upfront. So getting that right, I think, is important. And I think that protects regulators from regulatory capture as well, because then they know exactly what procedure they have to follow to be fair. I think policy is often the piece where you need to have more flexibility because the technology is changing, you know, the outcomes you're solving for may be changing, the stakeholders may be changing business models. So that's the piece, I think, where the interaction, the collaboration is vital and, and building those trusted relationships ahead of being in a, a policy, heated policy debate is really vital. Um, uh, but that's a sort of continuous process in a way of continuously building those relationships, continuously updating your knowledge, continuously making sure you understand each other's objectives. Um, and, and I think if we can get that balance right, it will help everyone. Um, I would also just say on business models, I think the third thing I think we don't want to fix is our mindsets like you know I, I struggle with this kind of concept of big tech a lot because I look at my membership and I have almost no one in my membership that anyone would actually rationally consider to be big tech but often I almost have to the some policy debates start with the presumption that big tech is the default when it's often the exception and there's not even one type of big tech so I think, you know, recognising in Australia, for example, the thing that we excel at the most is enterprise software across the entire tech sector from defence to space to everything else. It's the one part of our sector that has most continuously produced high value successful companies in the last three decades is enterprise software, which is a subscription model. It's usually very, you know, in the nicest possible way, very boring. You're doing accounting software and payroll software. It's, it's a very, very different culture to the one that people think of with big tech. And it has vastly different incentives because, if you want to, if your customers are paying a fee for your service, the last thing you want to do is misuse their data because the first thing they'll do is cancel their subscription. So it's an existential threat to your business when you're not managing these issues well. So I think, you know, having that open mindset and not, you know, industry not making presumptions about regulators, but regulators not making presumptions about industry is also really important to get the policy right. But then having that procedure fixed and certain and clear up front just gives everyone good parameters as they engage. Yeah, and I certainly think um, the point you made, Kate, right at the start, that it's um, it's not bad regulation, but uncertain regulation. Um, that is something that there has been, that I have heard um, from a lot of the industry um, uh, partners that we have consulted with this through this process. I think bad regulation is probably often a focus of civil society um, and, and you know, wanting to make sure that we are getting good regulation. And I, I don't mean to imply that you would ever condone bad regulation either, but I'm just, it's an interesting way that that the focus differs um, between uh, industry, government and, and consumers or, or um, NGO and those types of organisations. Um, I, wanted I think to go the, the other important thing on that is the difference between 
bad regulation is one thing, which is very different from bad regulatory outcomes. And I think to Kate's point, the idea of certainty, I mean, I sort of scribbled down as you were talking, it seems to me trust in a regulator kind of requires maturity on both sides, a degree of consistency, a degree of explicability of decisions, a degree of a willingness to exercise proportionality. But the mm -hmm. key thing is it doesn't mean agreement. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't ultimately mean the industry and the regulators have to see eye to eye. That's in a sense where mm -hmm. you make you, you avoid the capture. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that it's boring process. Getting boring process mm -hmm. right, as Kate says, not to argue about it, is really critical. Yeah. Kate, agree. do you want to jump in? We, if we're allowed to agree this time, Richard, then I do agree on that. Awesome. Um, guys, I wanted to turn and, and please, I, I've been injecting comments and questions that people have made all, all through the session, but if you have any, please drop them in. Um, I, I wanted to come back to the question here that's, uh, that's been put in uh, the chat from John Lawrence. Um, partly this is self-interest because this is something that um, we're really focused on in part two of the report, but it also comes to Kate's point about um, the uh, AI and data assurance um, example that you gave uh, with the New South Wales government. So the question is, do we need something like the Office of Technology Assessment, which used to advise US Congress so that legislators were able to access impartial expert advice? And so just for everyone's uh, benefit, in the report that we had in part one, we did propose a model that model um, references and builds on, expands on this concept of the Office of Technology Assessment. We've looked at many different models internationally. And one of the things we'll be proposing in part two of the report um, is a model that builds on many of these elements, but also we've heard loud and clear from the people that we have consulted in the second round that we shouldn't just be creating new organisations for the sake of new organisations. So we're really trying to blend together the existing structures that we have to bring together ideas like this um, concept, Kate, of the, the AI and data assurance, but access to experts, increasing participation of civil society, consumers. Um, the, the question of funding there is one that is a really important one. How do you actually, we can't just keep expecting organizations to turn up when the organizations, you know, similar to net things is done in a volunteer basis. How do we actually, you know, get that uh, uh, participation in a meaningful way um, uh, from uh, those types of groups? Um, so uh, to the both of you, is there anything you think when, you know, the, the tech assessment model didn't work, it, it ultimately failed and was wrapped up in the US. Um, so do you think there is merit in, in this idea that, that John uh, has put forward the question um, and Kate, maybe yours is um, the more discreet um, uh, example you were giving of the, the New South Wales uh, system. So maybe I'll throw to you first. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think anything that can help, say, parliamentarians improve their technological literacy, you know, recognising that they're often having to review huge numbers of bills in really short order, you know, can be valuable. And I think exploring ways to help them um, develop that literacy is useful. I don't have a fixed view on the right model. I think the US perhaps has also used fellowship models, for example, where they've had people cycle in and work in um, political offices for periods who've come from scientific or technical backgrounds. I think that program actually has been really well regarded and quite a success. So, um, you know, obviously you still have the parliamentary library service there. So there might be ways that you can ensure they have um, people in their staff who can advise on these issues um, 
beefing that up. There's, there's probably multiple models for that question. But I think for me, when I think about the impact and risk of regulation, like the one, the one thing that genuinely makes me feel, in, in this job has genuinely caused me to have sleepless nights and feel stress, is illiteracy over data regulation and just the risk created, like this sharing economy scheme, I've put a lot of thought into it because the rules say, you know, the ATO can require huge ranges of, of businesses to collect potentially very sensitive personal data, bank account details, names, addresses, emails, everything we're sort of worrying about now. Lots of businesses who've never collected this before pass it on to the ATO every six months and that the ATO might use this data to... Um, connect those data sets to other data sets they already hold to help them assess a person's individual tax liability and then pre-populate their tax form. This is how they've told me it's a use case. And as someone who worked in Dublin next where I came to this role, everything about that model has every single red flag going off for me on data governance because that's such a sensitive use case. You're calculating a tax bill liability and we know tax bills are a big trigger for bankruptcy. So the you know, you're pre-populating in a form so no one knows, you know, how it was calculated. So there's just a whole set of issues from an AI perspective around that use case. But to date, it has triggered zero regular flags. It's, it's legislation that's been passed. It's, you know, and then on the other side, this idea that we've got a huge new program requiring private sector companies to go out and collect all this data without really giving thought to whether in most cases, the types of people who started will now be even collected are even at risk of tax fraud. And yet we're gonna kind of just kick off this big new program with no digital identity solution, no thought to how that data will be held and stored and for how long in those companies like, and yet we wanna start the scheme within about 12 months. Like everything about this for me right now is triggering a lot of angst and red flags, but there's no system in place I feel like I shouldn't be the red flag. I shouldn't be the canary in the coal mine. There should be some system in place that has already identified these risks that's kicking off, you know, a really um, thoughtful, objective, independent assessment of that kind of program. And yet we have nothing. Hmm. We've passed yeah. it with nothing. And that that's why I say that AI and data assurance framework, which I think is thoughtful because it has lots of components, an independent group, a pre-agreed framework, uh, a process for people coming back continuously to improve and design. I think if we did one thing in the next 12 months federally, putting that kind of model in place is helpful because it'll solve for a range of different policies, a range of different programs. It's like one instrumental intervention that I think stops us from having to solve each of these as single use cases. Yeah. Um, so you, you've you um, uh, given us your one uh, magic wand thing you would like to change, and I'm, I'm going to allow Richard to respond, um, but also add to the response, Richard, if you had that magic wand, which I love to give people, I'm going to give a bit of a plug. We have a podcast called Tech Mirror, and I often give our guests uh, the magic wand of if you could change one thing. Uh, so what would the what would the one instrumental change that you think would make a really big difference and then also this question of tech assessment conscious that we're coming up to time as well and wanting to make sure that um, that we finish on time for the next panel um okay so i'm not sure i've got a magic wand answer and partly that's how i'm going to play the humble public servant card and would hate to sort of preempt a great idea that ultimately might be entirely inconsistent with government policy but um a couple of i mean just a couple of thoughts firstly on the i mean a couple of thoughts on the thing we've just been talking about the there is an interesting question, I think, 
Tate's point about literacy is a really good one. Um, uh, what the model is, I don't know, but and parliamentary literacy is an important thing. They are passing the laws, so how do they get come up this curve? It sort of sounds like we're looking around. I don't know whether this is what John had in mind, but in a sense, we're as Kate, Kate referred to the parliamentary library, the other observation I'd make is almost a parliamentary budget office mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, uh, so that that question of literacy of lawmakers is interesting and it's different obviously to literacy of government and literacy of public servants mm -hmm. and literacy of regulators. Um, on, um, on Kate's uh, magic wand idea, I think that's, um, I think that's really interesting. The thing that I would just want to make sure that we don't, the thing that in a scheme like that, if I understand it correctly, mm -hmm. that we just need to avoid the temptation on the government side doing is to make sure we know what we're doing for industry in terms of giving them guidance or assistance or comments or, you know, around design, for example. Is that a defence against a problem in the future? Is it a capacity to change, you know, where, do, where does the the assurer sit with respect to, well, what if someone follows all of the assurance, gets all of the assurance that every step they're taking is the right step to take, and then a problem occurs down the track? Um, how do we, in a sense, protect everyone in that scenario for not, um, uh, to make sure that we get the benefits of guidance and, it, and help and assistance and assurance on the way through, but, um, don't sort of expose people at the far end. That's not very well explained, but I just no, no. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, I think it's a really good point, and and I'll clarify as well that this scheme. So the New South Wales government set it up. It's their sort of customer service department and digital department. So Ian Offerman, who leads their um, yeah yeah team, is was one of the initiators of it, but within the context of the department. So this, so they've set it up just for New South Wales government programs. And so the first way that I think this would help federally is if the ATO is doing a big data program internally or, or any other agency, you have a sort of standard framework which tells you exactly the things that you should be thinking about up front and then a really expert body that you can go and test it with. So that's uh, putting aside policy. I think that's one very useful purpose for it. But noting that often that kind of program will be legislated. So there's a connection from the design of the policy through to the program delivery. I think the second purpose, which is not how it's used in New South Wales, but it struck me could be really useful, is to also be able to use it when you're thinking about designing regulation that invokes data collection or invokes the use of AI. Because actually the people on that panel have the same skill to tell the legislators, you know, whether they think they've accurately captured the technologies they're using and the right risks. Yeah. Um, Kate, I'm, I'm going to have to jump in. I'm sorry, just because okay. I know that there's um, a panel coming uh, after us, before us. Um, and as I expected, such such a good conversation. Um, thank you to um, both uh, yourself, Kate, uh, Kate Pounder uh, and Richard Windia. Really delighted that you were able to join us for this conversation. Thanks for the great comments that came through. I couldn't agree with you more about the need for um, the connection between education of the, the tech providers ethics um, regulation. This is actually the mission of my centre, the Tech Policy Design Centre. Please keep an eye out for part two of our report, which is actually going to try and answer many of these unanswerable questions. Thank you so much and best of luck with the remainder uh, of the uh, event. Looking forward to um, participating.
Thanks, Joanna. Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was produced on Ngunnawal lands by Jack Fox. Ben Gowdy provided invaluable research and post-production support. If you would like to support the pod, please give us a five-star rating or even better, leave us a short review. This really helps us to get the word out. We also love it when you send us questions or comments. We read them all. You can find out more by following us on Tech Policy Design on Twitter or LinkedIn or Google Tech Policy Design Centre and follow the links. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved.